Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am not here today with your your favorite co-host, uh, Tiberius Wan. Today you only get I. Uh, this is your co-host, Joshua Knoll. I am here with a special guest, uh, Dr. Bodie Hodge of Answers in Genesis. Uh, also wrote a ton of books, I'm finding out. Um, uh, just getting to talk to him, get to know him. Um, so this will be a really fun time. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Answers in Genesis has to do with the first part of the book of Genesis, uh, usually dealing with creation and kind of the apologetics of, uh, I would say it's y'all pretty much only talk about young earth creation or defend it from other stances when you bring it, when those come up, right? Yeah, we, we tend to deal with, uh, biblical authority issues. That's what we try to dive into. And a lot of those attacks, uh, on the Bible come in Genesis nowadays. So we deal with a lot, uh, particularly Genesis one to 11. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, for those who've been following the podcast for a while, you know, we've had several people with different views on the beginning of Genesis on and to stay true to the whole church podcast, uh, we like to try and represent as many views as we can and just kind of ask the question of, can we get along while disagreeing? Um, and of course, we've had people represent the traditional view before, but it's a real honor to talk to answers in Genesis because that's sort of the um, foundational place for these arguments right now. Um, for those of you who saw the Bill Nye and um, Kevin Ham, I just can't remember his name right now. Is it Kevin Ham? Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, Ken, Ken Ham and Bill Nye. Yeah, they had a they had a Hamm, huge yeah. great. And uh, okay, that's so the that <laughs> at the Creation Museum. So yeah, see a lot yeah. of people. Uh, you know, they may have heard the name Answers in Genesis, but if they think of the Ark Encounter or the Creation Museum, a lot of people have been to those uh, attractions. Uh, those were built by Answers in Genesis. Yeah, yeah. So if you heard or saw part of the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate uh, that happened at the Creation Museum, that's all associated with Answers in Genesis, like you said. So awesome stuff. Uh, before we get into it, I do like to review some of what's going on with our audience. And today I'm, I'm going to review a review someone left us on Apple Podcast. Uh, Randall Sims said, just very simply, good job. Glad I found this podcast. Guys, uh, something just as simple as that really helps the podcast a lot. Just getting those reviews, getting people to see what we're doing and makes us feel a little better, too. So it's nice. Um, for If you have followed it for a while, you may have noticed the last few weeks, we've kind of been every other week. Um, that actually hasn't been intentional at first. We had a lot of reschedules and cancels and stuff. Um, we're going to continue the every other week for a little while longer so we can build up what we're doing here. And we have really good stuff coming up for you guys. We'll talk more about that later. Um, but without further ado, we like to start our interviews off with a silly question because silliness is my favorite form of unity because who can argue when you're being silly? Um, <laughs> uh, so Dr. Hodge, I'm going to ask you and I'll answer first, give you time to think about it. Uh, if you could teach a rhinoceros any one trick that a dog can do, what would it be? Sit. <laughs> It would have to be sit because I'm going after me sit. <laughs> you just did not have to think about it. No, oh, it, man, I don't know. Uh, I think I think it's like teach yeah, it fetch. <laughs> like if I, if I could if I could teach it to fetch where it doesn't like run over me when it runs back to me, that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> I just think it'd be yeah, really amusing. Oh man. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's get into the real stuff. Um. What can you tell us? I know you kind of touched on already, but what could you tell us about the origins of Answers in Genesis? How did it all get started? 
Well, you know, it goes back to Ken Ham. He's the founder of uh, Answers in Genesis, and he's originally from Australia. Uh, he started teaching in, uh, on uh, creation many years ago. He was a public school teacher, actually. And he always had this desire to build a creation museum because there's so many secular museums out there. He really wanted to see one that honored Christ. And uh, through the years, he ended up speaking over here in the United States and uh, finally got a group of people around him said, let's build this creation museum. And uh, that's what really st started and launched Answers in Genesis, uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood almost about 25 years ago now. And uh, he selected to come out here in the Cincinnati area. We're just south of Cincinnati in northern Kentucky uh, because it is within one day's drive of two-thirds of the U.S. population. So the, it was wow. centrally located for that reason. And, of course, now we built the full-size Ark Encounter. And, I mean, we are seeing a massive crowds come in. Uh, one thing that's interesting, you may not know this, but when we see the crowds of people coming here to the Ark and the Museum, we're seeing people from all over the world. We're seeing people of all sorts of uh, varieties uh, showing up. I mean, it's nothing for us to go out there and see a, a group of Jews, a group of uh, Amish, and a group of Muslims, and a group of Hindus all kind of standing within proximity of each other, uh, just fascinated with the Ark Encounter. So it really is kind of a neat outreach uh, to get the gospel out there. Well, yeah. Well, especially if you're doing like a long road trip and you're in Kentucky, it's um, I mean, it, you got to stop at the Ark Museum and you got to stop at Mammoth Cave, which, you know, maybe that's just mostly for your outdoorsy people. But, you know, it's a it's a big deal, especially in, in that region. Um, is there any which I think I know the answer to this, but is there any specific church denominations that answered in Genesis have any affiliations with or is it just kind of non-denominational? No, actually, we don't. Well, an interesting yeah, a thing about Answers in Genesis, we're considered a parachurch ministry. We're actually made up of people from a host of different uh, denominations. We've got people here that are Lutherans and Baptists and, and Methodists and, uh, uh, it, I mean, just hosts of different, different people. Some people are non-denominational and so forth. And we have a particular statement of faith that tries to stay out of a lot of those denominational battles. And we let churches battle that stuff out. They've been battling it out since the Reformation anyway, you know. Uh, you know, whether it's Calvinism <laughs> and Arminianism or variant views of eschatology and so forth. And in fact, people here, you know, we encourage them to know what they believe and why they believe it. But as a ministry, we're going to stick to our niche and and deal with what biblical authority achieves. And uh, so it's actually been a good working relationship. So, huh. so with, with such a diversity from the church in there, um, I'm just out of curiosity. I know primarily since you're dealing with biblical foundation issues, Y'all have a young earth stance, but is there anyone who works for Answers in Genesis who might have an older earth stance than others? Or No, they really wouldn't, uh, simply because our statement of faith has limitations on where you're at. Okay. And there are certain things, you know, there's limitations to keep out, you know, certain people who may say, say that, say, Jesus is a created being. You know, that's, that's going to be in violation of our statement of faith and so forth. So uh, we do have a particular niche, but uh, most uh, people from varying denominations could sign it without a problem. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting issue. Um, so when it comes to so we we do like a three tier system where like first tier is we we can't call each other brother and sister in Christ. Second tier is like you don't go to the same church, but you know you're you're still good. And third tier you can go to the same church and disagree. And I feel like um the young old earth stuff kind of verges between second and third tier, you know, where it's yeah. like there's some people I feel like in every denomination that takes one of those two stances, and then. Once it, I think once it gets to like uh, creationism versus like Christian evolutionist, that's where it's like second or first tier. It's like 
both of them seem like in between almost. Like it's like there's a lot of battle where I place that. Yeah, and it's weird how. Yeah, yeah, it's just weird how many splits over the one topic, but um. Oh yeah, of course. Um, and, and you know, if you go back, you know, just look at the history of the church. You know, from the church fathers moving all the way up through the Reformation, uh, even up into to times, you know, say early 1800s or so, uh, nobody was battling over evolution because it wasn't an issue. Um, you know, in fact, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that believed in an old earth uh, prior to uh, the 1800s. Uh, in the late 17, early 1800s, uh, people like uh, Buffon, uh, Charles Lyell, some of these guys, they started publishing, starting to argue that rock layers were laid down slowly and gradually over long ages. And uh, this started to influence the church. And so a lot of people in the church are like, well, what do we do with these uh, supposed long ages? And see, this is where that battleground is. It's over rock layers. That's where the idea of millions and billions of years actually comes from. It comes from rock layers. A lot of people don't realize that. But, uh, you know, when we look at it, we're looking at those rock layers. The vast majority of them have fossils, that is, as being a result and evidence of the flood of Noah's day. Because we expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. What happened in the early 1800s, particularly and a certain number of theologians started to say, well, what if those rock layers are actually uh, evidence of millions of years? And then they said, well, where do you put millions of years? And you can't put it between Adam and Jesus. I mean, nobody would do that. So they said, hey, how about we put this millions of years right up here before Adam? And then all of a sudden you got a lot of different worldviews, whether it's <laughs> theistic evolution, gap theory, progressive creation. Well, they're trying to reinterpret Genesis to get one of these variant views to accommodate for millions of years. So that's really where that battle's at. Yeah. One thing I, I find interesting is like, I forget what it was. There was a Greek philosopher for at like during like early church times who had a, everything was made up of these really tiny particles and that kind of like weird kind of theory. And the church kind of dealt with it and moved on. And it's almost like it came back a second time. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah. here, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a Greek philosophy called uh, Epicureanism. It, it actually yep. goes back to Epicurus. And Paul argued against the Epicureans and the Stoics there in Acts chapter 17, just to give you a taste. But yeah, that view, it even died even within uh, Greece for, for a long time. Uh, really, that idea got rehashed by Lamarck, Jean Lamarck in, uh, and, uh, in the 1800s. It was Jean Lamarck. He had a form of evolution called Lamarckian evolution. That's where, you know, the giraffe, you know, trying to reach up higher and higher uh, acquired uh, uh, traits. That's where that came from. In fact, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, wrote a book called Zoonomia, uh, not to be confused with Zootopia, a whole different subject. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he know. wrote a book on Lamarckian evolution. He was a Lamarckian evolutionist. So, so Darwin himself, Charles, uh, was pretty heavily influenced by an evolutionist in his own family. Yeah, which is it's interesting. And then um, while, while we're talking history, um, I, I think it was, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was um, St. Augustine who basically argued instead of taking Genesis that literal, he thought there's no way the earth is as old as the Bible kind of suggested is. You so almost argued that it was a younger earth. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Well, he was, some yeah, interesting he, he had an interesting view. Yeah. He, he tried to do something. He, he tried to take all six days of creation and cram them into a single point or a single day. And uh, I remember Martin Luther actually commented on that during the reformation. Cause during the reformation, people were looking <laughs> back yeah. at some of these ideas and uh, he said, uh, you know, there's no sense in, in doing that. Just if it's six days, what Moses says, take it to six days. And, uh, you know, so I always thought that was kind of an interesting little debate going on in the Reformation. Oh, yeah. Well, and that uh, kind of brings us to where you guys do, right? Uh, Luther, 
and I want to say Luther and Calvin both kind of helped with that literalist kind of view, which doesn't mean we take everything literally, but rather, what, what if we just read it and took it for the most obvious meaning? Right. And, and that's what a lot of people meant. You know, the old definition for literal is that's what I mean. You take it in the style it was written. You know, uh, there, there are passages in the Bible that are poetic. There are passages that are metaphors. There are passages that are psalms. But then there's also narrative, literal history, you know, should be taken as literal history. And that's kind of an interesting aspect. When you look back at Genesis 1 to 11, it's largely written as a historical narrative. And the later Bible authors seem to take it as a as a literal historical narrative whether it was Peter or Paul or even Jesus, when he, he quoted Genesis 1 and 2, for example, in Matthew 19 or Mark 10. So. Yeah, which uh, does bring me to my next question. Um, a lot of people with the literature, specifically of Genesis 1, uh, they like to say that that is poetry because, you know, uh, was it day one there was light, and then was it, is it day four that God created the sun? And they, they try to do those mm-hmm. parallels and say, see, this is poetry. Um, what is what is your response to those kind of ideas? Well, first off, it's not written as poetry, and uh, Hebrew scholars, you know, unanimously say that it's always been written as a historical narrative. But see, there's actually not a problem with things like that. You know, God creates the light on day one. That's not a problem. I mean, we have flashlights. There's all sorts of sources of light. <laughs> we just automatically get in this mind that oh, it had to be the sun. Well, it doesn't have to be the sun. It was just an original light source. But on the fourth day, God made the sun, and that's what took over the duties or the light and dark cycle for the earth. All you need for a, for a normal day is a rotating earth and a light source. And uh, God just doesn't tell us what that light source was. Some people think it was God himself emanating. I mean, uh, one way or another, it is some sort of created light because God said, let there be light and there was light, which is not a problem for an all-powerful God. So, um, you know, when we look at those things, those actually aren't as big a problem as some people might think. Interesting. Okay. So what what are some of the... <laughs> not that the, you know, that any of them are necessarily good or whatever, but uh, what are some of the hardest challenges you've had to your beliefs concerning this? You know, probably one of the biggest ones that people want to bring up is distant starlight. I don't know if you're familiar with the distant starlight argument, but, uh, you know, we look out and we see these stars that are billions of light years away and people automatically think, oh, well, it takes billions of years for that light to get here. Um, But here's something that a lot of people don't tell you. The older scenario, the evolutionary scenario in particular, they have the same problem. Uh, So they're trying to get light here uh, a lot faster than light should have been here. So we actually both have the same problem. Now, we've actually had a lot of researchers that study this. And one of the things that Einstein did that really uh, gave a jumpstart to this is he pointed out that the speed of light is constant in the universe, not time. And the problem is when we look at this situation, we're automatically assuming that time is constant in the universe, which is a big problem. But the other problem is when we look at this from a godly perspective, just thinking in terms of God says, hey, uh, he, he made the stars also, let them be for light on the earth, and it was so. That's not a problem for an all-powerful God. I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to limit God and what God can do to a naturalistic understanding of things. So uh, we have to be very careful of that. Uh, like I said, there's a number of models that can solve this. One of my favorite ones is by astrophysicist Dr. Jason Lyle. And uh, he's got a it's alternate synchrony convention. I don't want to scare your audience uh, with fancy <laughs> terminology. But let, let me picture it like this. Let's say you're going to ride a light beam from a star billions of light years away all the way to Earth. And you're going to ride that beam. How long is your trip? It would actually be an instantaneous trip because as you approach the speed of light, time goes to zero. So for that light beam, it was an instantaneous trip. 
And so the point is you can pick that convention to do it. Einstein was the first one to actually propose this. Dr. Jason Lyle was the one who ultimately completed some of those equations and he solved it. And it's interesting out in the secular world, they're like, huh. solves it, you know, because he, he went through the peer review process <laughs> and like, we don't like it, but it solves it. But I'm just waiting, you know, because uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they want to borrow from that type of a model anyway. Huh. Wow. Fascinating. Um, now, I do wonder then, um, could that also be a good answer for some of how scientists have dated parts of the Earth and stuff as being super old? Is there an answer for the inconsistency of time that would explain that as well? Or is that uh, not necessarily um, because that has to do with radiometric dating methods and the problems with radiometric dating methods, you know, as a material science, that's kind of my background here. Um, there's a lot of assumptions involved in it, whether it's potassium argon, rubidium, strontium. I know Bill Nye actually brought up some of those in his book. And I actually dealt with it in the book that I responded. Uh, I actually wrote a book inside the Nye-Ham debate. Bill Nye and I actually have the same degree, but I'm one level higher than he is. And it was interesting. At the end of the debate, I, I got a chance to go up and said, hey, I got this Bible. You want to sign it? And so he signs it real big. Bill Nye, the science guy, and he and he, he put an arrow to the content, contents of the Bible and he said, question everything. So really, I had Bill Nye's permission to question everything he said in the debate. So I really did. But, uh, you know, he really liked rubidium strontium. But the problem is with all of those, there are certain assumptions that make the calculation work. Like if I were to date something, let's say I got, got some sort of item here and I want to date this with one of the radiometric dating methods. I can go in here and measure right now how much of that radioactive material is there. Now, how much was in there originally? We don't know. Um, has any seeped in or has any seeped out? We don't know. We don't know its history. And also, has the rate changed? And a lot of people don't realize that most of these radiometric dating methods, we can go into the laboratory and we can actually adjust their rate of decay. We can speed it up, slow it down. In fact, that's what a nuclear reaction is, is a different type of radiation, but it's the same sort of thing. So there's a lot of assumptions in there. The point is, when it comes down to it, depending on what assumptions you pick, you can get almost any date. But that's where they get the dates from. They're getting it from the radiometric dating methods. It has nothing to do uh, with light or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Hey guys, we just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a few ways that you can support us, the whole church podcast, your favorite church unity podcast. Yeah. So you can donate to our cash app using the tag that's in the show notes. You can follow us on patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever great podcasts are found. You can rate this show on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. You can sign up for our newsletter by going to our website or by emailing us at thewholechurch@gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you could share this episode on your own social media. Especially that last one. Uh, news travels fastest by word of mouth, which, you know, since the internet has been invented is much, much faster than it used to be and ridiculously helpful. So please just, you know, slap this episode up on your socials. You think it'd be more or less helpful if they went to their neighbor's house and mentioned it also? Probably less. Okay. Depends on how friendly your neighbors are. Uh, should we get back to the show? Yeah. Well, so um, obviously you have a strong and well thought out stance on this. Um, and there are people with strong and well thought out stances that don't necessarily agree in all ways. And uh, we we try to not give away kind of where we where we are with some things just because all of a sudden we take one stance and half the people are like, oh, you're not really the whole church. Um, yeah, and I understand that from your possession. I, I get that. You know, <laughs> yeah, which, uh, yeah. Sorry, listeners. 
I'm still not telling you. Um, not telling. <laughs> but uh, I do wonder, um, do you believe that it's possible to have Christian unity uh, with people who believe in a Christian form of evolution? That's like God started evolution, but, you know, it's still evolution. Well, here's the thing. A lot, yeah, you know, a lot of people don't understand this about me. But, you know, there was a time in my life that I actually, uh, you know, was was starting to deal with those millions of years and maybe the Big Bang and trying to see how that might work out with my own Christianity. So it's not like I haven't been through that. And I haven't thought through some of those issues. Now, biological evolution, I never dove down that route. But I struggle with some of that myself. Uh, you know, can people have unity? I, I would suggest this. I would say in every instance, you can have unity, but it must come by standing on the authority of God and his word. Because that's what you got to unite around. If we're not uniting around God and his word, then by default, we're uniting around something other than God. And uh, we, we have to be very careful of that. I know in Romans uh, 16, 17, Paul uh, makes a big point of saying, you know, those who are being divisive, divisive are those who are going against the doctrines that they've already laid out. And so, you know, when we think about the doctrines that the apostles were laying out, uh, this is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. That's what we've got to unite around. Hmm. Now, would you say then that uh, can we unite around the Bible and not necessarily agree with every interpretation one another has of certain things? <laughs> you know, no two people agree on anything anyway when it comes true. to it. That's true. That's very true. Thing with Calvinism and Arminianism, um, you know, modes, uh, modes of baptism or eschatology, people aren't always going to agree with each other. Now, here's the thing. Um, you know, as somebody who had kind of been on that other side of that fence, and I actually work with people who used to be evolutionists, uh, you know, right here at this ministry. Um, what we found is you've got to go back to God and his word. And if you're going to read it consistently, let scripture interpret scripture. There's going to be a consistency. Uh, you know, let me just give you a, a one little example. Any of those worldviews, like what I did, I struggled particularly with the progressive creation viewpoint, taking millions of years, stretching out the days of creation, that sort of thing. If you put millions of years before Adam's sin, you've got a huge theological problem because you have millions of years of death, because that's what we see in those rock layers. We see millions of years of death if those rock layers are evidence of millions of years. So death, though, is actually described as an enemy by Paul. Death was the punishment for sin. When Adam sinned, the punishment was death. So if you have millions of years of death in here, guess what? At the end of the creation week, God declared everything that he had made very good. In fact, Deuteronomy 32.4 says every work of God is perfect. We expected the work of creation to be absolutely perfect. So if we have millions of years of death in there, that makes death perfect. I've had some people say, well, maybe Satan fell between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. That's popular in gap theory. Well, if that's the case, that makes Satan in his sinful state very good. That makes sin very good. You see, these are theological problems that really uh, undermine the gospel because the punishment for sin is death, and that's why we need Christ to save us from sin and death because those are enemies, those are bad things. So, you know, what I say, you know, can I stand side by side with an evolutionist and praise God in song? Absolutely. Can I stand next to an evolutionist and argue against abortion? Yeah, we can. But when it really comes down to where our differences are, where you have tonight is on the street. Yeah, which is where I say, which is where I said earlier, you know, a lot of times um, when it comes to that specific thing, it's like between that first and second tier. Where it's like, okay, yes, we can stand and worship God side by side, but also, especially coming from from your side, it is a okay, but questions of sin, questions of the need for mm -hmm. Christ come up, and those are salvaic issues. So it's 
it's really kind of bordering on the line there of what you can yeah. and cannot believe and it still be the gospel, you know? Right. Um, well, you know, I was involved in a World Religions and Cults book series. We had over 60 World Religions and Cults. And we work with experts of five different continents to write and review that set. And we have a whole section specifically on the secular religions, atheism, naturalism, materialism, and so forth. And one of the things that came through loud and clear is an evolutionary worldview, Big Bang, which is cosmological evolution, millions of years, which is geological evolution. They came out of a naturalistic and a materialistic worldview by people who were actually opposed to the Bible. And one of the things that really hit me when I was struggling with these issues is what I was doing was I was taking aspects from another religion and I was bringing it over and trying to mix it with my Christianity. And what, that, that hit me really hard because when I do something like that, when I, when I struggle with things like that, um, something had to give. And I've seen a lot of Christians say, well, let's just give up the pages of the Bible. Let's reinterpret that in light of this other religious tenet. I said, no. After a while, I sat down and I said, no, God's always right. God's the one that's always right. I need to be very careful about taking these aspects from another religion and mixing it with my Christianity. And I'll tell you what, that was a life change for me when I got to that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I would, I'm trying to be careful here. <laughs> um, Don't reveal your position. I will, <laughs> I will okay, say to, let me ask to you our a listeners. Question. Let, let me uh, ask you one here. Okay. If a rhinoceros was chasing after you. Oh, no. <laughs> and you could jump into something, what would you jump into? Let's have a little fun for a second. <laughs> I could jump into something that yeah, like, would you to get away into like a or... swimming pool into a box into something. I mean, I'm thinking like an, like an endless ball pit, <laughs> like, like from like <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese, but like just endless. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Just swim away in the ball. That's an interesting um, answer. I don't, I don't think I would yeah. have thought of that. <laughs> well, so I, I, part of my job is to come up with silly questions. So naturally I have silly answers sometimes. <laughs> oh man. Um, no, so I, I do want to say for, for our listeners, um, I, I've known people who I truly believe were Christians who watched pornography, did not realize it was a sin. And then when they did, it was a struggle to stop. Yeah. Uh, same thing with, you know, drunkenness or, you know, being addicted to cigarettes and stuff. I've known people who just did not know they were a sin and it was a struggle to stop in when people are struggling, whether it's sin or with an idea of creation or evolution, depending on what you believe, doesn't matter. When people are struggling with these ideas and with these sins, that does not mean you discommunicate with them. Yeah, um, there there uh, is a line. Know, if they're denying Christ, you can't have Christian unity. But right, and, and see, that's where I want to encourage people because there may be people watching or listening that might be struggling with one issue. You know, maybe one of the ones you even mentioned there. But, you know, here's what I want to encourage people to do: go back and read it. Go back and get into the scriptures. Um, you know, I, I want to encourage people, go back, read Genesis 1 to 11. You know, in fact, I, I've read Genesis 1 to 11 so many times, I can almost <laughs> quote it. And, and I'm not good at memorizing. Um, but that's the key. Whenever there's an issue, whenever there's a struggle, if somebody's struggling with pornography, if somebody's struggling with addiction, go in and see what the Bible says on those subjects and read it over and over again. Uh, the Word of God never comes back void. And so... Yeah, boy, I want to encourage people get into the Bible. That's the key. Yeah, and this to be controversial, I'm going to second Bill Nye and say, question everything, read it all, question it all, yeah. and and you know, I'll I'll add maybe maybe pray about it also. Um, oh, of course, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Okay, so 
to kind of switch gears here, um, just talking about Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and all that, um, you that y'all are building a Tower of Babel, right? Um, what yes. can you tell us about that project? Well, it's, uh, it's going to be on the same site that the Ark Encounter is, so it, it's pretty exciting. Uh, we're actually working with researchers uh, trying to determine what's it going to look like. Can we build a full size? Should we build a scale size one? You know, how big was the original? You know, when it came to the Ark, the Bible gives us the dimensions, which was pretty good size Ark. That's why when you see it, you're just blown away about how big it really was. But with the Tower of Babel, we're not given the specific dimensions of it. So, you know, we're having to look at it from other means. We're going over and, uh, uh, you know, doing a lot of research based on what we see in the in the Middle East, particularly at, at, at Babel. Uh, there are some archaeological finds. There's the Tower of Babel Steely and so forth. So we're working with researchers trying to battle that out. And uh, it is interesting behind the scenes. We really do battle over <laughs> these things, uh, you know, in Christian <laughs> unity, of course. But, uh, we, <laughs> of course. We, yeah, I mean, different people have strong, strong opinions and views on some of this as well. But some want to look at it from a geological perspective. Some want to look at it historically. And, of course, you know, we always want to elevate the Bible and make sure the Bible is our absolute authority when it does come to those issues where they touch on that. But uh, it, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be uh, a, a, definitely an intriguing structure. But one of the things that we want to teach in there is the fact that we all go back to one man and one woman. That's Adam and Eve. And because we're all going back to Adam and Eve, that means we're all made in the image of God, which means we all have value, which means we're all sinners, too, which means we're all in need of salvation through Jesus Christ. So I think the message that's going to come through and it's going to be pretty powerful. Awesome, awesome. We, we don't have to be worried about God confusing the languages again, though, right? No, they're already confused. <laughs> hey, but you know, here's the brilliant thing. In Christ, at Pentecost, we got a chance to see all those languages come back together, which shows God is the God above all that. In fact, I wrote a book on the Tower of Babel uh, where I actually trace all these different people groups and where they went to. Not every one of them, not all of them can be traced. But a lot of these cultures around the world, they actually kept track of their own history. And uh, we see King's lists and names of places that still reflect it. Uh, you know, like the the name Javan is one of Noah's grandsons. And every time you see Greece in the Old Testament, the name behind that is Javan. We translate it as Greece. So, I mean, we still see some of these really incredible reflections. So if people are interested in that book, that's a really neat one to pick up. Oh, yeah. Plus, just in general, if you ever have the opportunity to do a side-by-side study of the Day of Pentecost and the Tower of Babel story, it's remarkable how how clear a reversal it is, you know, where man's sin has pulled us apart and then Christ kind of put us back together. Yes. Yeah, he really does. Beautiful, beautiful comparison. Um, now, you actually wrote a book about the Tower of Babel. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, there? it's uh, something called the Tower of Babel. If you look up Tower of Babel and Bodie Hodge, you should be able to find it. Um, you know, and I trace a lot of these people. I also look at the archaeology and the tower itself and some of the old images that people have have shown, uh, which is kind of neat. You know, there were some ancient historians that commented on it. They got a chance to see it. And, and that, that's kind of neat. It helps bring it alive. Um, but I really do. I love, love studying people group, groups because I'm a mutt. I've got some German, <laughs> English, Irish, Scottish, Italian, Portuguese, Swedish, some Native American. I, I'm, I, I got all sorts of stuff in there. And then I marry a lady who's German, English, Irish, and Chinese. <laughs> and yes, my kids are beautiful. How, do, how did that happen? <laughs> Uh, you know, so it, it really is uh, <laughs> a thing that I always wondered, where did all those people groups come from? Where, you know, what about these languages? And believe it or not, there's a lot of history out there on it. And it surprised me. So uh, I was pretty excited to put that book together. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, um, and uh, if TJ, my co-host was here, he could verify this. Um, I, I knew him from church camp from when he was, he was fairly young and, um, he's, he's always kind of been one that's just really smart. Um, he had spent years every year trying to guess my ethnicity. And, um, <laughs> so that's always been fun for me. To, it's, what's funny is I feel like I learned a lot about different, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say unknown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot, of, a lot of different stuff in me, honestly. Um, but mostly just European with a little bit of Native American mixed in. And I don't know why I'm as dark as I am. It just kind of happened. Oh, but, oh um, that's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a fun time. Actually, because of a, a lot of the things he guessed, I actually learned about different people groups where he was like, are you this? I'm like, what, what's that? <laughs> so I just looked it up. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Thank, oh, thank you, DJ. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so before we we begin kind of getting to the wrap up, uh, what's a, what's one question you wish people would ask more? You know, I, you know, a lot of people ask this, but I would still like to have more people ask this question. And that is, why is there death and suffering in the world? Uh, you know, ha- Halloween is uh, come and gone. Um you know, and every year it comes back and, you know, it brings up death and suffering. And, and I've had a lot of people that, that do ask the question, why is there death and suffering? But I would love more. And, and here's why. When you go back, why is death and suffering in the world? It, it's a result of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God cursed the ground. He cursed the animals. He sentenced man to die. But at the same time, right there in Genesis chapter 3, God gave this amazing promise of the seed of a woman. And, you know, throughout the Bible, it talks about this seed and finally, uh, we get to the New Testament, and Christ is that seed. He is the one to rescue us uh, from this sin-cursed and broken world. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. That's why we need a new heavens and a new earth. But see, when Christ died on the cross, the infinite Son of God took the infinite punishment from the infinite Father. He took that wrath upon himself. And that's what makes salvation possible, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And... It's just incredible thinking about the righteousness of Christ and how that can be imputed to us as Christians. And we're seen as spotless before God simply because of the righteousness of what Christ did. And so there's a relationship between taking that right to the gospel. And I think that's a powerful question to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, So we always like to ask our guests if they could just give a single tangible action that would help maintain unity in the church, what it would be. Um, it, It doesn't have to be how we can maintain unity with people who disagree with us on this specific subject, just in general, what's one way you can think that people could practically help find unity in the church? Well, you know, uh, I've kind of alluded to this before, but I would really like to see people just get into the word of God and, uh, you know, don't be afraid to sit down with somebody who's in opposition to you and uh, read the Bible together. Um, you know, deal with questions, ask, uh, you know, uh, tough questions and, but don't be afraid to seek the answers. You know, I, I've met a lot of people over the years, many of which are just absolutely genuine, and they are the just the loveliest people to go into the Bible with. But then I've also gotten some people that come in, and they're just, uh, sometimes they're just mocking and scoffing. And, you know, there's a time to cast pearls uh, before swine. Uh, you know, the Bible says, be careful that Titus 3, 9 and says, 10 says, uh, to answer a divisive person once, answer them a second time after that, have nothing more to do with them. So there is a time to to deal with the scoffing. People are sincere and genuine. Get into the Bible and uh, and go for it. it. It'll never come back void. It really won't. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, um, some of my favorite Bible studies have been in college where you just have all these people from different backgrounds, different church denominations, mm -hmm. just talking about it. And it's, um, yeah. just kind of fascinating how, how that can play out. Um, what would you think we would see change in the world around us if more people started doing that? Oh boy. <laughs> you know, as soon as people get into the word of God, I mean, it, it changes their lives. It helps us grow close, excuse me, closer to Christ. It helps us be more molded in his image. And uh, anytime we can do that, that's a, that's a betterment to the world. Um, you and I alike, you know, we, we've seen the world. We see what's going on. There's a lot of horrible things. In fact, a lot of our listeners might, they can probably name on, uh, on both hands, uh, you know, just horrible things that are going on around them or things that they see in the news and things that they're praying for. Um, but sometimes, you know, like the Bible says, be still and know that uh, God is God. And that, that's, that's something that we can rest assured in. You know, the Bible says be patient during affliction, uh, during tribulations and trials. You know, we need to focus on God. And when we see more and more people doing that, uh, it really does change things. Uh, you know, I, I, I have this brilliant opportunity to be able to work in ministry with other Christians. And you know what? We don't agree with each other on, on a great many things. And sometimes, you know, we sit down, we go through the Bible, we talk about things, we battle things out. But at the end of the day, we put our arm around each other and go, all right, let's go home. <laughs> you know, we're not in the niche. You know? yeah. So it, it's a great learning experience growing closer to Christ. I know when people are out in the world, they may not have that type of camaraderie that we have maybe here at Answers of Genesis, uh, but they can find uh, other Christians or people that they're witnessing to, you know, and when they do it in a Christ-like fashion, being humble, but at the same time being bold for Christ and his word, you'd be surprised what uh, kind of relationships can grow out of that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna further further your challenge um, to any ministers listening to this. Um, one thing I've seen I've seen a couple churches do that I thought was really cool, and I would just like to encourage more people to try this. Uh, reach out to a church in your community that does not agree with all of your doctrines, and set up Bible studies where you have people from both groups looking at this, able to you know iron sharpens iron really look at this with contrasting viewpoints and just discuss what the word says. Right. Um, yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, yeah, cool. So <laughs> um, <laughs> we finally, so <laughs> we like to just kind of share something God's been up to with us recently. This is our God moment segment. I, I don't know how to introduce this. This is supposed to be TJ's job. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, this is our God moment segment. We just like to take a minute to just kind of discuss something God's done with us recently. Um, whether it's a blessing challenge or whatever. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll go ahead and go first. Let you, let you kind of think about it. Um, plus TJ always makes me go first and usually I am prepared. Today I'm struggling. Um, well, here's one. I am currently taking uh, Systematic Theology to Anthropology. And the chapters I had to read this week, which I know this is a cop-out. When it's my homework, like it's like, ah, of course I have a weekly God moment there. Um, I had to study some about the doctrine of man, including sin and the origins of sin, which is pretty relative to today's topic. Um, and just kind of being reminded of all of the many, many reasons <laughs> that I am sinful and why that is in me and why I do need Christ is, uh, I don't know. It, it was challenging. I'll, I'll go with a challenge for today. Um, what about you, Dr. Hodge? Did you have, uh, 
anything God's been up to with you recently? Oh my, I'm always dealing with one fire after another, but, uh, you know, just to clarify with everybody, I don't have a doctorate. I do have just a bachelor's and master's oh, degree. I'm sorry. Um, that's, that's no big deal. You know, people confuse that a lot, but, uh, you know, if we're, uh, you know, making sure we're, you know, being, being accurate on here, I just want to make sure. You know, oh, yeah, I'll just cut out where I said doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a big deal. But, uh, you know, I mean, w- we're always dealing with things. And, you know, when it comes to something like the Tower of Babel, even behind the scenes, you know, just looking up the immense amount of research, uh, having to battle out just little details after little details. It's hard to believe. We look at every single word. We look at massive amounts of history. There's a lot to look up. There's a lot of research. And then sometimes people take multiple views on these things. And so uh, we do have to uh, deal with a lot of those challenges. Uh, so, you know, I would definitely love for people to be praying for me, uh, praying for the Ministry of Answers in Genesis to make sure we get this right and get it get it good. Because, uh, you know, when it's something like this, literally millions of people are going to get a chance to see it and learn from it. So we want to do what we can to uh, do it right, uh, to honor Christ and uh, honor his word as we go through it. Um, but recently we had uh, Dr. Seth Postel on um, from the the Bible college in Jerusalem. And it, it was interesting. He, he was talking some about um, this kind of thing of how you can see the gospel in the books of Moses, which does include Genesis. So there is opportunity when you're doing this, the arc thing, it's not just, Hey, look at this cool story. This is also part of the gospel and it's a way to share it exactly. with millions of people. Like you said. Yeah. And it's yeah. Um, even if you don't agree with their specific stance on creation, Anytime there's a chance for someone to share the gospel with somebody else, that is a great thing. And um, we do appreciate everything you guys do. Um, Yeah. So everybody listening, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Uh, TJ will obligate that I also say or enemy because he always says, you know, (laughs) any sharing is good sharing. Um, So, yeah, there's your there's your TJ line. You're all welcome. Um, (laughs) uh, So, uh, Mr. Hodge, uh, where can people find you and your books and follow Answers in Genesis? Well, probably the easiest place to reach me is AnswersInGenesis.org. Again, that's AnswersInGenesis.org. But uh, if they come to the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter, they look those up. They should be able to find those easily online. But uh, quite a few books. I know we mentioned the Tower of Babel, and then I have a response to Bill Nye uh, inside the Nyham debate. But uh, been involved on quite a few resources for uh, most ages. So try to find something that you like and uh, go from there. Awesome, awesome. All right. And then uh, for future guests, uh, we have upcoming, we're going to have uh, Pastor Matt Chandler of Village Church and the author of The Explicit Gospel will be on. Um, Kristen Dumez, author of Jesus and John Wayne, will be on. Um, Eric Nevins, the head of the Christian Podcast Association, will be joining us again. And of course, at the end of season one, we might have Francis Chan, depending on if he agrees. <laughs> Uh, just I have to say that every episode. Yeah, ob- obligated. We're going to speak it into existence. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you all for listening. Um, if you want to hear this last thing, just go head on over to Patreon.